Hello and welcome. It's the Filmmakers Podcast. Ah, today's show is with the fantastic Tom Payton. We discuss how he made five feature films in five years. I could go on about how much information and how inspiring he is in this podcast, but just listen, it's coming up, it's amazing. Oh, so, what have you done this week to make your indie film happen? What have you done to make your studio film happen? Have you written your script? Have you spoken to a producer? Have you spoken to a director? Are you a director yourself? What have you done? If you haven't done enough, do it. Do something about it right now from your heart. If you want to do this it's a, for your job, for your life, then do it. Get out there and do it now. We are delighted to be sponsored again for the second week by the fantastic The Tracking Board. Thank you for those of you who went and clicked on the link and had a little look at what they're about last week. Really appreciate that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, the Tracking Board offer members exclusive news on what scripts and pitches are selling to studios and production companies, which is vital for screenwriters and filmmakers to know what is out there at the moment and what is selling. Um, so why not join thousands of industry professionals who have membership to the Tracking Board's database of deals and insider information about the industry? So do it. Get on with that now because the Tracking Board's team is dedicated to providing members with up-to-the-minute spec market tracking. Uh, and as you know, knowledge is power in this industry. So join the Tracking Board today. Um, you can go to tracking-board.com for more information. Uh, also, the Tracking Board's Launchpad feature screenplay competition is now open for entries. And they have deep relationships with Hollywood's top agents, managers, producers and executives from all the big companies. And you can become a member of the Tracking Board after this episode. I mean, you could do it now. Click the link and go there. It is trekkingdashboard.com. There you go. Link is in the show notes. Also, the Make Your Film event, July the 9th. Tickets are selling fast already. Our first guest announced is the fantastic James Kent, who made The Aftermath and uh, A Testament of Youth, and most recently Mother, Father, Son on TV. So he's going to be a fantastic guest. July the 9th, tickets are selling fast. We're going to help you get your film made. Get there. And our final collaboration this week is with Raindance. Um, you can get 20% off the film festival pass because Raindance is coming up very soon. So if you want your 20% discount, just enter Podcast 20 at the checkout. So if you just go to raindance.org, get your early bird film festival pass now for 20% off. Okay, let's get to this week's podcast, which is brilliantly produced and edited by Robbie McCain. Thank you, Robbie. Um, this is with Tom Payton. And he's just cool as fuck. And he's made five films in five years. What more do you want? What more inspiration do you want as a filmmaker to get out there and make your film? Uh, that was a little plug there for the Make Your Film event as well. So here it is. I sat down with the fantastic Tom Payton at Directors UK. And we talked about how he did it, how he made five feature films in five years. And gives you so much advice, especially about getting your business head on when you're a filmmaker. Enjoy this week's Filmmakers Podcast. Like everyone else, you started off making stuff when you were young, right? You wanted to be a sort of, not a filmmaker from young, but you wanted to do something creative, right? Yeah, I think for, for me, it's, it's weird. I, I, rem- I remember seeing Jurassic Park in the cinema being like eight or whatever and yeah. um, being convinced I wanted to be an archaeologist. <laughs> I think it was only when I was sort of like, you know, like 15 or 16, I realised, oh no, actually, it's it's 
you know, a filmmaker I'm interested in being. And I'd, you know, was, I kind of had like a real fascination with comic books and, um, you know, that sort of out there science fiction and, and horror sort of yeah. genre stuff. And like, I started to write my own comics essentially. Did and then, you? Yeah. Well, there's scripts for them. It's kind of how I, I kind of found my footing as a, as a, as a writer, or at least, you know, the sort of belief I could be a writer one day. And yeah. And then I, I kind of, from that point on, I really sort of fixated on the idea. Okay. I'm going to be a film director for a living. And, um, how old were you when you, you felt that? Yeah. Like 15, 16. I was, yeah. Like the, for me, there's oh never God. really been a, a place. I know. I never saw myself as any other kind of job. It was like, okay, I'm going to be a film director. But, Cause most kids don't know what no. I wanted to be a footballer. Yeah. But, and, and I, what, I was at Bradford city for years and I was like, I'm going to be a footballer. I, all of my other friends didn't know what they wanted to do. No one was like, oh, I'm going to be an actor or a fireman or whatever. Yeah, I was that it's kid amazing. that was like, no, I'm going to be a film director. Like, and you know, people used to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever, whatever, Tom. Yeah, yeah, I believe what, yeah. Did you know what that entailed at the point? Did no, I think, I think I just in my head, you know, this is it with filmmaking. Anybody that's ever directed a movie, you know, you, you never really know what you're letting yourself in for. Even, you know, I've done five movies now and mm. even the film we just wrapped, I was like, still don't really know what I'm letting myself in for here. So, you know, I don't think you ever really know what <laughs> making a film entails. But so true. I, I just, yeah, I just, I had this sense like that's what I want to do for a job. And, you know, of course it didn't really um, pan out the way. You know, I've got a very untraditional roots to this as a job. I mean, I never went to university. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't study to be a film director. I, en- I ended up... Um, you know, for a bunch of things, like, you know, my, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and then he got the all clear and so the family moved to Mallorca and then I ended up going to Mallorca. Wow. And then I ended up working as a holiday rep in Cyprus for Seriously, two years. Seriously, yeah. stop it. So the, there you, could be some people listening now who you were their holiday rep. Oh yeah, 100%. Going, yeah. chug, chug, chug and shit like Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. Making them do belly flops off the booze cruise and things like that. That's no, no doubt. I am... Um, yeah, was, I, I did this. I did this for a job, and I sort of had this idea while I was there. I was like, you know, I think what I could do is I could film uh, and edit together all these excursions, mm-hmm. these you know, like eighteen thirty guests do, and sell it back to them. And and so I pitched it to the company, and they said, yeah. And so my university was basically like three years living in in Cyprus, filming bar crawls and booze cruises and then editing them together really fast and then selling them back to their customers. So I was teaching myself the art of like sales and business. So like, I've never really done film where it hasn't been business. Yeah. You know, like I've always had to do film as a way of paying my bills right from the minute I decided I was doing it. So that is so super inspiring. It yeah. really is. So the fact that you went, I want to be a filmmaker, but I'm now being a club rep <laughs> and how do I make my dream come true? Well, do you know what? I'm going to just say, um, can I shoot stuff? Yeah. How did you get hold of cameras? How did you get hold of kit? How did you even know how to point it in the right direction? I'd quit the company the year before, uh, oh, you know, okay. yeah. and they'd asked me to come back and I'd said no, but that's because I had this idea that I was going to go and <laughs> pitch them this thing. And I literally booked a flight to Cyprus. Well, so you hadn't booked a meeting? You no, just said, no, 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 I just winged that, it and um, flew to love Cyprus. It. And walked into the office and it was a new manager there, you know, not the same one that I'd worked for. And I was like, hey, this is what I want to do. And I was like, they were like, I was expecting just, you know, kind of a flat no. And well, they just, it's a new manager as well. So it's yeah. like, they don't even know And that you. was on like the Wednesday and she was like, yeah, cool. Can you start Friday? What? And I was like, right. And then she's like, you know, you'll need a UK company and all this set up. And I'm like, cool. I don't own a camera. Mm. I don't have a laptop. I've never edited anything before. So like that, I literally started like just pointing the camera and and filming on the Friday. And I remember like over the next, (laughs) over the next like two months, like like, I just sort of like, it was like, 
having to get good at filmmaking and editing because I have no choice because yes. I've said I could do it, you know? And, and like, yeah, and it, honestly, it was the most, because what happened was by the time I kind of got to this three year mark of doing it, you know, I'd, I'd taught myself to edit and I taught myself to camera operate mm-hmm. and I started to teach myself lighting. And <laughs> sort then, of by but the now end. I, yeah, but it. now I'm at a place I'm like, okay, maybe I'll teach myself how to do uh, graphics. And then that became VFX. And so, you right. know, and I started teaching myself how to use like cinema 4d and nuke and after effects and, you know, and, and that, all that became applicable later because, you know, I then had this random idea. I was like, oh, there's this thing called YouTube. I think mm-hmm. this will be big. And, um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was never interested in being one of these like guys in front of the camera or anything like sure. that. But yeah. I could see that um, a big market that I got used to dealing with was, was DJs. And I could see, okay, I've got, I think there's going to be a gap here where DJs and clubs want like three minute promos that you know they can put out through these social networks and so yeah. i started doing that and very quickly i was like oh i think i'm the only guy in england doing these and so all the big djs started booking me and taking me on tour wow. with them and stuff wow and they had money then as well in terms of so yeah it's getting paid a lot money. real money now and um you know and then that became uh, you know i remember I was, I was filming for a dubstep brand again no everyone thought dubstep was going to die and i was like yeah i think that'd be all right that. yeah i think it'd just be all right yeah so I was, I was like the dubstep video guy for a while and really? um yeah i remember the making fir- the music videos or well, just- doing the club stuff at first because yeah. at the time there was no budget in that from that scene and then you know and then it started to go a bit more mainstream and, and this guy flux pavilion yeah. said to me um hey i've got this song called bass cannon you know we haven't got no money for a video like I, I think we spent 800 pound on this video and it was shot in a a barn in South End right. that I'd rented from the guy who owned the barn for two bottles of Jack Daniels and um, I blagged the speaker system and yeah. we sat these people that were just friends of mine on like a on a chair and you know I was basically the crew yeah and um yeah and the, video, the, the video was just two leaf blowers on on stands like blowing at people's faces and <laughs> it got like 40 million views on YouTube <laughs> and like launched my whole career so That's... next thing you know I'm getting phone calls it's like hey we did this video and the budget's like went exponentially up so yeah it was it's but it all really came from doing that that early stuff where it was like okay I have to treat my my film you know my film career as a business and yeah. I have to pay my bills every month with it and and to do that I better learn everything I can yes so I sort of could sell myself as this one man army which thankfully I don't have to do anymore I think every other filmmaker listening out there should take a massive leaf out of your book because a lot of people think it's just going to fall into your lap a lot of filmmakers go I've got this amazing script or a friend's written it and I've optioned it why is it not happening and it's like well you've got to get out there. And the fact people were ringing you saying, Hey, I know necessarily it's not feature films, but you're making stuff and you were learning. Yeah. I mean, you're you're not not doing another job, right? You're getting paid to do what you said you wanted to do. So, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it is. It's all about, you know, it's, it's funny because I hear this, um, quite a lot from people where this, you know, whether they'll, Oh, it's what I want to do. I, you know, I Mm. believe it's, I believe this is what I'm supposed to do. And like, I mean, I think I've always operated under this philosophy that, you know, nothing's a given, like no one owes you anything, Mm. you know? Yeah. Maybe you heard once upon a time about a filmmaker who just got lucky and someone going, but like, I was always under the impression, well, that will never happen to me. And so I better just like force this into existence, you know, however, however I can. And, uh, you know, I hear this a lot now because now that I'm sort of doing well, yeah. you know, I, I kind of I get this sort of repeated comment. I was, you know, it's just not, it's, it's about who you know, isn't it? You know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I think, no, uh-huh. I've always, I, I believe filmmaking, I believe at least getting to, you know, 
where you want to be. It's not about who you know. It's about what are you willing to sacrifice? Like, what are you willing to give up? Like, when, when my friends were, you know, buying properties or, you know, or going out and doing the stuff that, you know, I wanted to do, I was like, okay, well, I'm giving that up. I'm sacrificing it because I've got to work till three in the morning to finish this video for a client who isn't grateful and doesn't want to say thanks, but this keeps me in this job, you know? So yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's a strange one. I, I tell you, I, I think it is, it's just all about how much work are you, are you willing to put in? And mm-hmm. I'm very, I mean, I'm very grateful now I'm you know, I'm 33 now. And I think I look back to, you know, okay. I missed a lot of stuff while I was teaching myself these things, but you know, like, when I'm on set now, I'm very confident in every job role because I think, well, if somebody tries to blag me, I think, well, once upon a time I was forced to do that. So, you know, you can't do that. Yeah, to me. that's so right. I, I taught myself to edit as well. And I say, and I've banged on about it on this podcast enough. If you learn to edit, you'll be a better filmmaker because when you're on set, you aren't going, oh, I want this wide for this amount of time. And this, let's do 17 close-ups at different angles and whatever, because you know, as an editor, you go, well, I'm not going to use that. And how do I get out? from this scene to the next scene. And you're thinking about that as yeah, a, a filmmaker. I, mean, I, guess, I guess I sort of approach that. I mean, yeah, because this is, I, I, I know when I've got enough to yeah. edit, but like I also direct for coverage mm-hmm. because I also know as an editor, you know, that you can, like, it's funny because for me, the editing, the, the edit is, is the final draft of the script. It's, right? Yeah, it's the third bit. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. where someone can come in and completely alter something thematically. Can totally change it. Your beginning bit now might be your end bit. It's yeah, but it's totally even can. down to just by choosing this shot instead of that shot that, you know, somebody is imprinting their, you know, like when you, because I mean, as a writer, you know, I try, and a director, I try to focus very heavily on theme and, you know, and making sure that every scene has got some representation of the singular theme I'm trying to dissect. And then it's funny because when you let a, another editor then go wild on this thing that you've written and directed, you start to realize unless they understand the theme as well, they start to print their own version of that mm. theme onto it. And so I think you need, you need to be able to at least know the editing process, you need to know why you put in that shot there instead of this shot and yeah. what that says to the audience. But yeah, I fully agree. I mean, ed- editing is a, a real gift on set. I totally agree that you bring another editor in who wasn't on set with you, who didn't understand that this shot took me ages to do and it was raining and but we got the beautiful tear at the right moment because he goes, it doesn't matter because the story is key and I don't care about the shot. Yeah. I care about the whole arc of this piece and you're keeping it in because you cried during that day when you filmed it Yeah, it's or a, whatever, you know? Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? I think, you know, you're when you're l- looking at the edit of something, the real key is, I think, find, if, you, if you're going to work with a different editor or, or if you don't have a concept of editing yourself, you know, so find an editor who agrees with what you were trying to achieve with the script. If you bring an editor in who, like, let's say you're writing a, 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 uh, you're writing a script and it's about how power corrupts and yeah. what makes a good leader at the end of it. And then the editor fundamentally disagrees with what you think makes a good leader. Like mm-hmm. that film will come out confused yes. because they don't agree with you. <laughs> yes. There's no like unifying vision. They're going to force you know? their own version of exactly, it on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah they true. might make your hero come out as a bit sinister because they don't agree with that, that, <laughs> yeah, that path. You know, so yeah, yeah, I think you have to be, you have to find people that are on the same wavelength as you thematically. Mm. You know, I think that's the most important thing to me as a director is finding a, an entire, every HOD, I'm like, do you understand what we're trying to say? Yeah. And if they immediately get it, I'm like, cool, this will work. And if they're like, 
you know, they sort of say something that was completely not connected. I yeah. think, oh, maybe, yeah. maybe we're not going to be on the same page. Absolutely. Here, I want to do this black and white. I want to do this all <laughs> in slow-mo. Yeah, but maybe not on the same page. <laughs> exactly. Oh, we totally are. This yeah. is great. Let's do it. So your first foray into directing actors then, because before that you would music videos and stuff. Yeah. Did you make shorts before Pandorica? You know, it's funny because all of my music videos are all sort of narratively driven, bizarrely. Mm. Um of course, I did a few performance-based ones, but the crux of nearly all of them is uh, is narrative. And um, yeah, me and George Burt, my you know long time, long suffering, long suffering, <laughs> long suffering DOP, you know, and producing partner. You know, when we did like a hundred of them, you know, right. so it was like, you know, and it was often you just show up on set, we'd bring in some actors or some models, and you know, and we'd have like one day to put the whole three-minute thing together. And of course, you're not worrying about sound because the track's going in. Well, that's true. And you can, with music videos, what's great about them, you can drop in a, a cut whenever you like. Yeah. It, sometimes it doesn't have to be fully narrative. Exactly. I think, but what it really let me hone in on, like, is that all of my music videos became thematically driven. It was funny because I just woke up one day and everyone was like, oh, you should make a short, you should make a short. And then one day I just sort of woke up and was like, I think I'm going to make a feature. And it just... I just didn't really, feel just, the need to do the middle bit. But this must have been burning inside you since 15 or whatever it was, sort of going, yeah. that's what I want to do. Well, so, in my head, I'd sort of said, right, I'm going to do a film before I turn 30. Yeah. I'm going to direct my film before I turn 30. And I was like, right, I'm 29. Yep. Let's get that film done. <laughs> so that's well, yeah, what but, what, but what better inspiration than that, than your own self going, yeah. otherwise you'll turn 30 and go, I didn't do it. Well, and now you have, and you're like, well, even though it might have not come out <laughs> too late, but you'd made it then, right? There's that, there's that Baz Luhrmann song about sunscreen, and there's, yes, a, there's a great yes. line in it. It's like, the, the race is long, and in the end, it's only with yourself. And I sort of mm. always try and remember that, because it's very easy, I think, in this industry to sort of start to compare your journey to the people people's. around you, your friends or your colleagues or people that you admire, and it's mm. very easy to start to berate yourself or be hard on yourself because other people are doing stuff that you're not. Or it's not going the same way for you that it went for them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, just trying to remind, just, I remind myself all the time. Yeah, I'm only, I'm only in competition with myself. And so, yeah, I set those little bars like, okay, I've got to do this first film by the time I'm 30. And, right. You know, and that was it. And, uh, and you're 29 and you go, right, I'm going to do it. Why Pandorica? Why the story behind that? What was it that made you go, this is a story I want to tell straight away? I only had a sort of, I was obviously doing the music videos and obviously become very, uh, very business orientated, which I know is, is sort of almost a curse word to a lot of filmmakers. You yeah. know, they see the business aspect of the industry as the devil. Whereas for me, it's the, uh, it's the aspect I've lived and breathed since I decided to, you know, film a bar crawl, you know, it's, it's been, I'm business orientated. And, um, I was writing for this filmmaking magazine, mostly about filming nightclubs and low light filming. And, mm -hmm. um, some guys picked me up, uh, contacted George Burt's and, it was, you know, doing a movie um, called Endemic, which was uh, it, like a script, my first real feature script, and it was something that was really close to me. But I, I noticed that the process of putting a film together, like traditionally speaking, was super slow. And it just kept going. It felt like, you know, mm -hmm. a year and a half of meetings that just went round and circles. It doesn't go anywhere. And yeah, it's like, oh, next time we'll have and nothing Yeah, and so I decided mm -hmm. to sort of seize control of that myself and be like, right, okay, well, what can I actually put? Like, let's look at my music videos. You know, we were pulling off this thing and it looks amazing for like two grand. Like, okay, what could I pull off for 50 grand, say? Mm -hmm. You know, and um, very quickly, Pandorica was sort of born. And I knew I wanted to do something that, you know, I was looking at all the other first time feature film directors kind of pieces and they were often uh -huh. you know stuff set in in a car park or, or, or a closed location it's like the stuff that purposely it, it feels safe yes. to do right yeah and so i was like okay what's the most unsafe thing you can do with 50 grand <laughs> yeah shoot at night 
outdoors in yeah. England in October. And yeah. that's what we're going to do. Right. And so, you know, the, from there it was like, <laughs> well, what am I interested in? And, yeah. you know, I've always had this fascination with uh, post-apocalypse and, and, you know, I like the idea that um, I think the modern world is all built on this idea of where did we, you know, how did it all start? Mm-hmm. And so I liked this idea of having a group of characters that their whole world was based around how did it all end? Yeah, absolutely. I like you know, it. And, and Pandorica got born from there, really. And um, it's a thinly veiled metaphor for what do I feel makes a good director or a good business person, you know, right. and each character in the film kind of represents... Uh, you know, the different types of people I've met throughout the the years. And I tried to be very careful not to put myself in the script, but try to evolve my main character to a place. I was like, I think that's what I want to be. Right. You know, so it wasn't sort of self-serving or arrogant. And, yeah, um, okay. That's kind of where it came from. But Pandorica is, is, is this post-apocalyptic film about a group of young adults that are taken out to the forest to do a trial mm-hmm. uh, to see which of them will become the next leader. And it's set 500 years after the world ended and... Uh, it, you know, really play. It's basically like a work weekend away from hell, you know, where they all yeah. sort of like end up getting killed. And yeah, so it's, it's an interesting story. It was something that I felt like I could do, mm-hmm. but everybody else told me I couldn't, which just, just made me want to do it. Made you want to do it anyway. I'm going to do it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and it was, you know, obviously we ran headlong into crazy issues like, oh, God, what happens if it rains? Well, then it rains. And it rains. You know, and it was like, well, how are we going to, how are we going to light an entire forest well, at you, night? It's like, well, we're going to shoot on a Sony A7S at 20,000 ISO. There you go. And that's exactly what we did. Is it? Yeah, the movie's like, I think we're the first <laughs> film at 4K shot at 20,000 ISO. Wow. So, and it, it, I, I love it. I love I it. It's got that certain look. I mean, it's really it's special. Be, it's got this bizarre look to bizarre, it. Bizarre, like, but it works. How, how did they do this? And the truth yeah. is we did it because it was, like, it was like forced yeah. upon us. There was a necessity to, you know, we had one 5K HMI was that was say, backlight in the place. Fine, like a moon-esque or backlight. And yeah, then George Burke came up with this really interesting idea because obviously we were looking at, well, how would they, you know, Hollywood film light, uh, you know, this kind of scene. Mm-hmm. And they obviously used the big helium balloons, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, lights inside them. It was like 2,000 pound a day to rent. Totally, yeah. And uh, George came up with this like, uh, he's like, I've got a version of it. And he basically <laughs> brought um, one of these 30 pound um, wedding balloons meant for a bride. It's like a big white thing that she could carry around with her. Wow. And he basically tied it to a C-stand and he bounced to... Um, 1K LED panels off either side of it. And so it was like, here's our portable moon. And because Amazing. we're shooting at 20,000 ISO, yeah. they just lit that. Lit up. Yeah, it made it look like moonlight was hot, hitting them. And, and this 5K was just lighting the back up. And then obviously we had fire t- chucked in there, which bizarrely, the fire was almost like looking back now. It's, no, too, it's much. too much. Too much. Yeah, yeah, you're the too highlights bright. are going crazy in it. But hey, you know, so it was, it was a bizarre, it was like one of these films that was just like, can it be done? You know, we were doing all sorts of stuff like duct taping the camera to trees and, you know, what, we really? wanted to do a shot. Like, so what is yeah, it? just because we wanted a shot from that angle and we don't have anything that can do that. So we'll just like gaffer tape this A7S there and things like that. Was, <laughs> well, so you'd have that as the wide and then you'd be on another camera again? No, we, the whole thing was just shot single camera. It's, it's funny, there's quite a lot of um, like Ronan stuff in there. Yeah. And at the time... You know, the Ronin only just dropped. We managed to blag one for free for the shoes. Right. Did it but, work okay? Wasn't yeah, it? well, the Ronin oh, seemed good. to be fine because obviously the A7S is so light that the Ronin was almost Did like, there's nothing even on me. <laughs> um, but, you know, we didn't have the budget for a follow focus or a focus pull or anything. Right. And I'm not joking. All those Ronin shots are shot on uh, the 50mm pancake lens that comes for free with the <laughs> camera. And we're just using the autofocus detect Amazing. to pull it off. And again, it was just like, will this even work at 20,000? I was like, yeah, it worked fine. <laughs> so wow. should, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't have worked, but I really put that film down to my sort of 
just balls to the wall determination and the fact it, that George Burt is a bit of a genius that and he really knew how to, to pull it off. How so. did you raise the money for it? I mean, it sounds like it was really low budget anyway, but... Yeah, it was... It, so the guys that we were making Endemic with, they'd raised a very, very small pot of money that they were going to use for development and then mm-hmm. I sort of said, I'm out. I can make a film. Well, I just oh. went, I'm out, I'm pulling out the project. Oh. We've raised money. I was like, well, why don't you pay for this film? And at first it was like a no... And I said, well, fine, I'll just go and, because, you know, I could go and loan 50 grand from the bank if I want. Sure. And then it made them go, oh, actually, no, we will do it. Because I think it was just this, again, it was this sort of like, I was being so brazen. Yeah. That people were like, what? Okay, you probably can't pull this off, but what if you did pull it off? Yeah. We should probably just give him the 50 grand, That's incredible. And that's you being sort of, not bullish, it's the wrong word. It's being confident and, you know, saying, I can do this. I don't need you. Well, yeah. In a way, you know. Yeah, we shot the whole film in 10 days, you know, and it's actually shot in a, a paintball arena in Billericay in Essex. <laughs> is it? Yeah, because we it. were looking around for, you know, cause in my head when I wrote this, I'm yeah. like, hey, a forest is a piece of cake, right? Sure, no. Oh, man, no, no, it's no. the hardest thing on the planet. Mm-hmm. To, to shoot into, because council own it. Yeah, yeah. council own it and stuff. And, and we, private, we kept looking around and around and around and, um, you know, the my partner at the time, she she was like, oh, what about a paintball arena? And it's just like the penny dropped and it was like, I immediately was like, well, it's not paintball we want because we paint everywhere, mm. but there is airsoft. Yeah. You know, and if you look at Pandorica, there's a lot of this unique look that comes to it. Like, if you actually look at the soil, it's full. It looks like the soil is glinting all the time. Yeah. It's actually because it's full of white pellets. <laughs> That's amazing. It's just rammed yes. to the max. And yeah. obviously, one of the things we didn't expect is that once we turned the camera up to 20,000 hours, it was going to pick every single of one of those would. pellets. Yeah, up. So it, but that also makes it look magic, yeah, right? Yeah, it gives it this like post pocket. You're like, what's going on? And the plants look different. Yeah. But it's actually just paint, uh, like airsoft pellets. That I we love it. You made up. your own avatar, yeah. but fuck off. <laughs> By, by pure access. Pure access. How did it? Fe- how did it feel then? That first moment of I'm actually directing a feature film. I'm a feature film director. How does that feel? It's. Um, it, I think it's scary to be honest. I think yeah. there's a big gap between doing shorts and doing music videos and doing a feature. And I think we all enter into this idea of a feature, saying, you know what, I, I can do this and I'm ready for it. And if you feel that way, you should absolutely go for it. But be under no mistake, like the lessons you think you know, Mm -hmm. like it's a totally different ball game. And uh, by about day two or three, I was like, okay, this is logistically beyond anything I imagined it was going to be like. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm only dealing with like 30 people in a 10 day shoot, but even still it's, it's there's so many moving parts here. And you begin to realize when you're directing a feature film that it's fairly easy or easy-ish to maintain a narrative for three minutes. Yep. But trying to keep something narratively interesting for 85 minutes mm-hmm. is a different, mm-hmm. different And to keep game. all that in your head so that you know where the camera's going to keep me. Have I shot here before? Especially if you're in a similar yeah. woods, which can all look the same. Or I was in a room with the dairy. Like, how do we make this interesting? Well, I mean, I was always used to just like George and the makeup artist looking mm. at me. And so all of a sudden I've got 30 <laughs> people looking, you're looking at me. Looking, and what like, do you want? I'm like, right, red or okay. blue, red or blue. Like, I don't know. And Pandorica's is really involved film where it's got its own there's character mm. speaker made up language that I'd made up and there's all this cultural stuff that I'd made up and then it was like okay well, once you've got to put that into reality you're like oh this is a lot more complicated than it gave it credit for yeah. um, so it was a very scary experience but I've got I've got to say that that moment that I, I wrapped you know and it's like day 10 and I sort of I'm thinking to myself from an editor's perspective I know I can put this together and right. we didn't drop anything mm. we put the whole scripts on screen you know, other elements that I wish could be different, of course, but sure. all that really mattered was that I'd done it. Yeah, you know, and you made a feature film, and yeah, and it was it was funny because from 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 that point forward, I had the sort of like renewed confidence that, that made as I mean, 
that was in two that was October two thousand fifteen, you know, and it's now you know what June two thousand nineteen, and I've done five films now. Incredible that have Incredible. got escalated in budget. You know, the one we just finished is you know three million. So it's wow. It, yeah, I think that that I'll never forget the buzz of rapping that first film because I do. I think that was the moment I thought I can do this yeah. and I can do this. Yeah, I can run this the same way I run my other business. I can mm. make this happen every year. When you make your first film, I think that's one thing that you learn. You know if you want to do this or not. Because <laughs> what you go through is just, you, it's so hard to explain. Yeah. It's just all encompassing. It's everything. It's magical, but horrific. It's, you know, you, it's so hard to put into words what happens, which is why I asked well, the question. That, I can't remember who said it, but there's a saying where it's like, uh, yeah, ev- there's, there's loads of one-time directors, but there's not many two-time directors. Because yeah. I think... You know, the process of putting a film together for some people makes them go, okay, right, I didn't realise, is this is this really what I want my life to be? Do I want to be pulling my hair out mm-hmm. and, and all this stuff? But f- for me, uh, the minute I finished, it was like, yeah, this is it. Like, I, 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 Great. I'm just, you know, I'm hungry to, yeah, to do continually push it as hard as and I can. And let's talk about the selling of Pandorica as well. So don't yeah. forget, you've got to get it out there into the yeah, world. Yeah. And you're thinking about the next film at the same time, because it's literally five years and you've made five films. It, yeah. It's so been, Well, Pan, Pandorica, we sort of self-distributed in the UK. We did an hour screen thing. And okay, the, you, you were involved in that heavily as well, I imagine. Yeah, I was, I was, I was massively involved in it. You know, we set a company up around it wow. to, to get that done. And our screen was just starting then, really? Yeah, we were like the first indie movie that went out for them. And I think I we, remember, we sold yeah. like 35 screenings out in a block, like... Wow. Just like, so it, it was like, we were actually, you know, out there, you know. Doing so it, making your own self-dispute, your the, own film. The real, the real clever one with that film was we did this um, comic book deal with my geek box yeah. where, you know, because I'm always trying to come at things from a business perspective, mm-hmm. like, hey, okay, what, we've got this movie that, you know, from, a, from an industry perspective, intrinsically has no value, but it definitely has value to someone. So you just have to identify that yeah. and find a home for it. And uh, yeah, we did this prequel comic book which on the back page had a, a website, Earl, and that took you to watch the movie. And then Brilliant. we sold those prequel comics to my geek box for a pound per comic. And they ordered, let's just say a lot. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> we were all right. You, you know? did well. And was, again, that's from your design from when you were making comic books when you were kids. Now you've, you've got a comic yeah, book out there Just trying to come full circle. Like, okay, what do, but you know, it's identifying a need in something and then, Although, you, you know, because you're going to find a lot in this industry, anyone that's made a film and has taken it to market in, or yeah. a, in any way, shape or form, you, you know, this industry is full of, you know, that sales technique that sleazy menus on women called negging. Oh, okay. Where, yes. you know, like an yeah. ugly guy convinces a pretty girl that, you know, yeah. she's actually, should be grateful to him. Well, that's what sales agents do to filmmakers. <laughs> you know, you, you take your movie to them and they, and they sit yeah. down and they go like, hmm, mm. you know, I mean... I mean, I'd be, I'd be doing you a favor. And it's like, get out, mate. You know, you need the content. Like, you know, you know, and so, you know, you find a lot of filmmakers get shafted and negged. And I think my sales background let me identify very quickly that that was the racket that these people were playing. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew how to navigate around it, you know, and also now how to identify areas where I'm like, well, okay, to this sales agent, they're not going to understand what I've done here. But it'll still translate into money for the investor. So I, it doesn't matter to yeah. me whether they understand it or not. And Pandorica was a good example of that. And, you know, every film I've made since really has got some element of that too. Absolutely. So. And because you learned yourself, you did it from the ground up, from the story to, uh, you know, getting it out there in the world. You did it. Yeah, but it's like, okay, Amazing. so like on my second film, Redwood, you mm. know, we had a, 
a vampire film, mm-hmm. you know, and the mandate for the picture was it's a vampire movie. And so we got Nicholas Brendan from Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah, to be in it. Idea. Now to, to the sales agents and to everybody, it was like, well, this is, doesn't mean anything. This is worthless. He's not a big name star. He's not going to, but they didn't understood what I understood, which was I've been to comic cons. Uh-huh. I watched Seen people. The fans. Cos- yeah. They love this like, shit. Yeah. The, the, the idea that somebody from Buffy the Vampire Slayer would be in something with vampires in is, is a done deal totally. for Totally. They're and, all over it. They'll go, well, of course I'm going to watch that. Why and and where the sales agents just physically didn't understand what we don't. I, I knew that that was a clever sales trick. How did you know this then? How did you... Why were you so up on this to understand? What, what was it? Had you read so much? No, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, into, I'm into that stuff anyway. Right. You know, and like one of the things we did with Pandorica very early was target the Comic-Con scene. You know, and just sell the movie like, oh, hey, it's the same as you know like we do mcm comic-con at mm-hmm. london mm-hmm. and you know the panel before us was pacific rim and then after this it's it's tom Payton and pandorica and it's like you just you know there's this level of bravado about what we were doing that, right. that you know made me realize <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're selling if you know who to sell it to fine you know and was and, that you just sort of knocking on their door ringing them up yeah going, yeah just phoned them up like hey you've got, yeah, we hey, got a movie yeah. <laughs> and they're like yeah we love it because this is what you have to understand like i feel from my perspective is this the world as we know it, you know, there's never been such a high demand for, you know, products, if you will. Mm-hmm. And in, you, if you can meet the, the, the needs, I mean, there's more niches than ever as well now. And if you yeah, can meet yeah, yeah. one of those niches or if you can, if you can identify a hole and fill it, you'll be fine. And you don't need five million pound budget to do that. You need 50 grand and a paintball arena in Villa <laughs> yeah, You know, exactly. you can, you can pull and that a off. So. taped to a tree. You yeah, know? Exactly. <laughs> you can pull it <laughs> so. off. I love it. Um, Mark Zammett was obviously in uh, Pandorica, who's yeah. now directed his own film, Homeless Ashes as well, which is really interesting. So, uh, but how did Redwood come about? Why vamp? Obviously, you, did you think, I want to make a vampire move and I want to stick someone from Buffy in it? What was the reason No, this was insane. So okay. obviously we made Pandorica and it's this film, out, you know, set at night and yeah. it sort of bizarrely manages to penetrate the indie scene to the point where everyone was like, well, hey, who's this guy? Where did this come from? Yeah. And, um, you know, because like, literally six months before, no one had ever heard of me. Sure. And so... Apart from Butlin's reps. And yeah, so, yeah, and exactly. Butlin, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Cyprus yes. rep of the year, 2006. <laughs> and, still got the... Yeah, uh, still got the awards. Still got the award, award I own, that one. I love that. <laughs> these guys approached us, these, these, this Polish production company, and they said, oh, hmm. we've got this vampire film. Um, and we've got the location and, um, but the director's gone. And so now there's no script. Ah. I was like, okay, well, what's it about? And he gave me this pitch, which, you know, I mean, it was just, it was just like, I was like, definitely not. Really? Yeah. It was something to do with, um, Dracula was the head of ISIS or something. Oh, stop it. I mean, it was no. like, it You're was like, like no. absolutely, Who wants to see it was it? like, no. utterly insensitive and hilarious at the same time. And I was like, nah, you're all right. And, um, but these guys were like, no, you're the guys to make, like, we, we've got the location and we've right. got the money and, and we saw that you guys can shoot outside. So we, we want you to <laughs> we shoot. So we can shoot outside. And I was like, well, okay. <laughs> and right. they said, well, come to Poland, have yeah. a look at the location. And if you like it, then we, you know, maybe you'll come up with something. So me and George are like, well, well, well go on, then we're going to have a free yeah. holiday in, in Poland. Poland. It's quite nice there. Yeah. <laughs> so we go to this place in the Carpatch Mountains and, um, nice. I mean, and it is amazing. Yeah. Like this, it was like this abandoned and... Nazi mausoleum. Wow. You know, and I was just like, all right, okay, this mm. is kind of cool. And then the, I was like, okay, look, maybe I can come up with something. Your creative brain's going, yeah, I know. Do you know what? <laughs> yeah, but this guy then says to me, he yeah. goes, um, okay, but there's, there's three rules. I was like, sure. And he's mm-hmm. like, number one, 
Uh, you have to shoot it here. I was like, well, obviously. Okay, yeah. That's why we're here. That's uh, rule one. Number okay. two, Shit, it coming? has to have vampires in it. And I was like, okay, mm. why has it got to have vampires in mm. it? He's like, well, the investor, we've told him it's a vampire film, so he wants a vampire movie. Okay. I was like, okay, yeah. how loose with the term vampires can we be? And he's like, <laughs> because I'm a vampire. Yeah, he's, like, he's, like, he's like, if you call them vampires, that's fine. So I was like, right, okay. <laughs> and then this was the real kicker. He's like, oh, uh-oh, and um, uh-oh. number uh-oh. three, we have to start shooting by August the 14th. And I'm like, it's July the 3rd. Holy shit. Yeah. And got there's, no script, there's no script Pretty for nothing. Much. And he's like, yeah, yeah. If we don't shoot by August the 14th for 14 days, we lose the money and the location. And I was like... Yeah, you were like, yeah, I can fucking do no, it. No, I was like, no. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm not doing this. <laughs> it's not happening. And uh, I remember we got the plane the plane home and uh, by the time we landed, I was like, you know, I do have an idea. There you go. Then I went, back, I went back to my flat. I sat in the basement. And then two days later, I'd, I'd smashed out this script for Redwood. And I sort of sent them, so I was like, what about something like this? And they were like, you're greenlit. Come back to Poland. There's no way. That's yeah, simple. So it was like this first draft. And so we immediately just... <laughs> You're like, oh, wait, back. I need to rework it. I was expecting yeah, you to so say I'm, no. I was. I was reworking it on, course, on the fly all the time. And I'd obviously created... I wanted to do something that was a lot more Lovecraftian than vampires. And mm. Redwood obviously has got this totally bizarre spin. And it's more... It's, it's basically a character drama that turns into this sort of, uh, you know exploration of desperation if you will and uh, <laughs> that's a great word yeah uh, great but, I, mean, it kind of, I think i think the the sort of that 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 um that thematic thing of desperation it kind of came from how desperate these guys were to get this film made. <laughs> yeah, so it kind of birthed into it yeah so it has that wonderful look i mean look, the the poster in itself is cool as fuck you can see why it do well but the literal tagline i love this a little so there's a couple hiking out in the woods disturb a nest of vampires <laughs> yeah that's it redwood <laughs> that's there you it. go that's, that's it that's the that's the moment because that's how fast it came together i mean it was just this insane accelerated rate i you know i'd met mike beckingham at a pandorica screening um you know i really liked the guy and felt he could do this part quite well and then tatiana the lead actress yeah she literally sent in a tape she's like i'm out in italy and we were like right done well totally randomly or yeah well yeah because you know we we put out a casting call and oh great yeah and because we were moving at such insane speed there was no time for any sort of casting session no time for a table yeah because you're prepping and going it was just like yeah you're hired get on a plane and come to poland and um you know the, the film sort of centers around especially the end piece this big five meter tree creature thing inside this mausoleum that was there. Brilliant. And so we had to build that from scratch and, and put that up in the, in the time as well. So it was, it was ridiculous. How did you do that then? How did you, in terms of, okay, there's filmmakers out there going, okay, yeah, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. But obviously you know how difficult it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, but how did you do it? The crew were really good. Um, it, they were really hard working. And in Poland, there's this sort of this attitude. It's like, uh, you know, we'll sleep when we die so we'll just just keep going and you know i would be there going guys you've done 10 hours now like knock it on the head and they'll be like okay we finished work for the day and i'm like but you're still working they're like yeah this is my free time now and they carry on seriously i love doing this i want to do it yeah this is what they were here for you know well okay fair enough man and um, i think I, i i kind of that film if you will really made me step up as a director because it forced me to have this very clear unifying vision fast and you've got to remember the 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 most difficult part about this is is that there are only three english-speaking crew members myself georgian and and the ad yep everybody else was polish yep and i'd say 70 percent of the crew spoke basic english at best so you know i was having to learn polish words real fast i was having to be able to explain myself through diagrams and hand gestures and so you know what that does though and i had i mean obviously in bulgaria they can they do speak english very well but what some of them didn't 
And so therefore what I learned was I had to be so clear. So if you said, I want that wall to be pink-ish, they wouldn't get, that doesn't no. make sense. You need to show them pictures. You have to be so clear with direction and what you want. And I imagine you learned the same. Yeah, it made really, I feel like it really made me step up. I agree, yeah. yeah. You sort of, you go, I have to think outside the box. I can't just be like my mate going, yeah, no, I want it. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like a bit like, yeah, yeah, that's it. You can't say that shit. It means yeah. nothing to them. And, the, and you know, it's when you're in that sort of environment, mm. <laughs> there's myriad problems going wrong all the time. Did and, it tell us what, what, what happened? What went wrong? I mean, it was things like the locations, you know, some of them just weren't closed off and they were like seriously ah. dramatic scenes and, you know, you're trying to shoot and there's, there's a scene where they've come across a vampire nest and there's blood and guts everywhere. But there's like kids and families walking past Stop it on the it. path here. Really? And and I thought the guy who put the money in was yeah, like, owned no. it. I mean, this is one of the big issues of that <laughs> film is that there was, I've, I very quickly learned, be careful who you produce your films with because sometimes like just pure insanity can, yeah. can take over. And there were elements of putting that film together that just left me flabbergasted. It was like, okay. But it also taught me to be able to fight for what I believe in, in an amicable way. Okay. You know, so cause I think a lot of the time uh, directors, they, they combat their production or where the mm. money's come from in quite an aggressive manner to yep. get their, their vision across. And what they actually do is they, they dismantle themselves, you know, they, they've, they're almost taking the wheels off their own bus. And so what Redwood taught me to do was, okay, I fundamentally am not getting what I wanted from this situation. Yeah. Can I use my selling skills to sell these people on the fly so that every day became this sort of like, it, it felt like being a, a holiday rep again. It felt like I was going into a welcome meeting and being like, here, buy my bar crawl. Wow. Really, I'm selling them. Here, buy this idea instead it's of It's amazing to that it. that job you had, first of all, taught you so much. Yeah. No one would have thought that that kind of job would well, have I mean, you think about what, I mean, you're, you're a director, you know this. Sure. Like, most of what your job is, like, Raising the money, mm-hmm. convincing people to come on board, uh, making the crew work unified, getting the actors to do what you want. The crux of all of it is, can you sell whatever this vision is? You yeah. know? And, and for me, I always just treat whatever, whatever I'm trying to do as, okay, well, that's the product. How do I make these people buy it? And, mm-hmm. and, and realizing that every single person across the board is, is looking for something different. And you've got to be able to, to make sure that what you're doing meets what that person needs for them to buy into it that's so interesting i've just never thought of it that way but you're so right you are selling to almost everyone but to me i'm just i feel like i was just having the conversation but actually you're trying to get the costume designer on board with yeah. your side or the set design say no no i want it this color you're, you're selling them your you're vision sell, you're selling them you're yeah. so right but the thing yeah. is like any good product that you buy right if someone sells to you and we've all had this where someone's sold something to you yeah and then it turned out to be not what they promised like for me, like that's when you're guaranteed to, to rupture yourself. You know, yeah. like I've, I've always seen it as my job is to make sure that whatever I'm selling, I'm delivering what I promised, you know? Yeah, so know like it's going out of your way to have some integrity about what you're selling as well. And I think that forces you as a director to, you know, really make sure what you're doing is, is as good as you can possibly get it yeah. for whatever stage you're at. So yeah, I think it's just about, Try it. Yeah, it's, it came in really handy, that job. Let's put it that way. <laughs> which is, which is, who thought? I love that. A holiday rep. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to become this big director and I love it. How did you get Redwood to everyone? It found this traction of its own. I mean, the, the real turning point for Redwood was it was um, selected for Fright Fest nice. in London. Yeah. And, you know, we got the, we got the call through. So, yeah, you're in Fright Fest. I was like, well, okay. I wasn't expecting that. And, um, you know, but then Fright Fest is a, is a big event. Obviously, it's a big it's, event, yeah. You know, like a lot of worldwide attention comes to Fright Fest. And um, I was like, well, hey, man, we're probably going to be like Sunday morning in the mm. small screen, but pff, 
whatever. Yeah, yeah, take and, it. Then, and then the uh, the actual schedule came out, and you know, like the opening night of Fright Fest, like there's four films, and um, you know, it's normally their big big four, yeah. and Redwood was the first one on the list and wow. i was just like what what you were opening fright uh, yeah and it went wow, it, it wow, did wow. honestly it did That's the film so world amazing. of good it did my career an immense amount of good and I'm, uh-huh. I'm i'm very very grateful to the firefest guys and you know i feel they've become you know good friends in the years since where because I'm really grateful to, to the platform they gave me, you know. But, yeah, that's that's really kind of what launched um, Redwood in the direction it went. And it went on to do, you know, really well, particularly in Eastern Europe where we shot. It's like the Polish really got behind this movie that was shot in Poland. And that was kind of cool as well. Was it an easier sort of to pick up the distribution then? It wasn't an issue or did you? Yeah, there was a lot of people vying for it after, um, after Fright Fest. And uh, in that sense, it was like I sort of let the production take the lead on it because you know i'm always trying to learn and get better i don't you know i don't ever want to stagnate and you know if something keeps going right for you it's easy to accidentally think what i know best and so i always try and keep that reined in by going okay try the thing that everyone else is trying to tell you to do and and then you can find out if there's a mid-ground or if you were right or if maybe you were wrong and so redwood kind of let it really just do the traditional route if you will yeah you know, and I think what I'm doing now has sort of ended up as this amalgamation of, you know, I, I, I sort of trust my gut, but at the same time, I, you know, yeah. I let them, you know, I try to bend the model to what I want as opposed to just ignore the model. You know? I see what you mean. And what did you learn from your first film, Pandorica, that you brought into Redwood? What what was it that you'd said, I'm going to do differently? Or was was it just, you know, yeah, it was, happy it, to get doing No, it? I mean, obviously, I mean, Redwood looks high like it looks you know very yes. expensive compared to pandorica pandorica is the charm of pandorica is that it is so low rent, of course right? and that's always there i think everyone's first film is like that it's yeah. the charm of you know you just went I-, I don't really know so i'm just gonna do this i think i think pandorica's got this aesthetic that's all of its own whereas redwood yes. feels like uh something you would expect to come out of a you know a mini studio it looks you know shot on you know alexa mini and mm-hmm. uh, an alexa uh uh, XT or ST, I think it was. Um, you know, and we had like, we had lighting trucks and we, you know, where before we had the, 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 the balloon, <laughs> balloon on the stand. On the stick. Now we've really got the helium balloon and all this right. stuff, you know, so. And was that a nice feeling as well to go, all oh, right, we can actually afford to bring in some nice lights with George and yourself happy with that? Or? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, when you get all the toys, you're like, wow, okay, this is great. But I think the one thing I really took away from my experience between Pandorica and Redwood was that actually, you know, the toys don't necessarily matter. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that really counts is, did you put the story on screen? Absolutely. You know, and Redwood, there's always, it's funny because Redwood's got a lot of fans and it's got a lot of haters as well. You know, as most films, my films are Marmite and I'm quite happy. I was going to how do you deal with that? Then? I don't how really d- care. That's do you not? <laughs> no, well, not but really. we all really care deep because we spent so long on something. No, it's, I think me as a filmmaker, I look at my catalogue, right? Redwood is the one for me that I have the sort of, the most sinking feeling about only because the general consensus to Redwood seems to be, yes, all right. <laughs> right, which is more annoying than someone going to hate it because yeah. at least they've got an opinion. See, with Pandorica, right, it right. was like pure passion or pure <laughs> disgust. And with Black Sight, we've got the exact same <laughs> thing. Like, people are either like, oh my God, I, I loved what you've done here. Or people are just like, man, you are the worst filmmaker I ever met. And like, I feel wow. like, well, at least it was worth doing. Whereas when something mm. was, when you get, yeah, it's all right. Uh, there was almost this, and I, I feel like I sort of sensed right. it when we were at Fright Fest. I feel like I sort of sensed 
watching the film with this audience that people just sort of stood up and went, yeah, yeah. it was all right. All right, cool. <laughs> what what like, are we having for dinner? Which is not what we were. I understand that now. Whereas, you know, whenever we've done screenings of some of my other stuff, um, you know, it, it's been like a polarizing reaction right there at the point of the film finishing where some people have got to be like, oh, we're a waste of two hours. I never get that back. Or somebody else is like, I will stand here for two hours until I can ask Tom a question. And like, yeah. I don't know. I think for me, I'd rather make stuff that, that feels like, well, I had a point to, to make and yeah. you might hate the point, but I still made it, yeah. you know? And I think, um, Redwood feels like a very, it's a good, it's a good safe film, right? Like, yeah, that's sure, how I feel. sure. You know, and everything else I've made is, is very unsafe, you know? Do you think there's a reason that it was slightly safe? Like you say, cause it was your second film. I don't know. I'm just trying to think. Yeah, no, why. totally. I think when I got the polarizing reaction on Pandorica, you know, there was a bit of me that was like, okay, no, no, I want to prove that actually, you know, my stuff is commercial, if yeah. you will. And so I made this ultra commercial film. And I think I missed the point in that all my stuff is commercial and the polarizing element of it actually makes it more commercial sure. because there's something to sell it on, you know, yeah. when yeah, something's yeah. just all right, you know, and like, I'm very fond of Redwood and, you know, we did some really cool stuff in there and I, I still feel there's a, there's a cool mythology under the bottom of it that, you know, we never really scratched correctly. But like you say, you did it five weeks prep, literally going, right, let's go shoot it. So do you know what? Brilliant. Because you got to make another film and uh, learn. Yeah. And- Redwood was more of a, an exercise in, could I do it as opposed to should I do it? You know, <laughs> yeah. it's a bit like, uh, now, like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, yeah. like all full circle. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's interesting now you'd probably say no, right? Yeah, probably. There you go. But at the time it's, it's making a movie and it's doing something you love. And you know what? You're a talented guy. You can go, I can do something with it. It's also this. about not being ungrateful though. Like oh, I'm crazy yeah. grateful to yeah. Redwood. And I'm grateful to these, these people that took a punt on me. And, love and that. It. So and true. I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here sitting on your podcast mm-hmm. had I not made that film because that, that, yeah. I wouldn't have got into Fright Fest and then, you know, people wouldn't have started paying it. So it's, it's, it's funny. You can feel a certain way about the products, if you will, personally, yeah. but then I also accept it for what it is, which is a fairly popular film with a decent little fan base. And for that, I'm grateful. You Absolutely. Know? And it, and it did well and it made yeah. its money back. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And well, that's the key to any of this, isn't it? It's like, did it make, did its, it make money its money back? Did it make its money back? Is it who's in it and did it make money back? Because yeah. that's what's... And then, obviously, that did work for you with Black Sight, which came next. Yeah, so that was... Um, Black Sight was my third film. Yeah. And it was it was almost sort of revi- revisiting the Pandorica well and going for this, like, super mythology-heavy, lo-fi... Yes. Like, it's everything Redwood isn't. It's grungy <laughs> and dirty and... But you must have done that on purpose a yeah, little yeah, bit. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you went, I want to go back to my roots. Completely in reactionary yeah, to, to, yeah. to the Redwood experience. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's basically a big John Carpenter pastiche. Yeah. But it's also, it's also got a mythology in there that, you know, I feel is worthy of exploring. And, you know, we're, um, currently working on a, on an anime version of that where we're, Are you? yeah, going to reboot it and really kind of explore the mythology in a more, you know, interesting way. But, yeah, Black Sight was very reactionary to, to my experience on Redwood and, and intentionally making something that was super polarizing that, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of eschews modern filmmaking techniques on purpose, which really pisses some people off. Sure. You know, yeah. but then there's other people that are like, I totally get this. Get so it, I 100% get what you're yeah. doing here. Yeah. You know, and so it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a, an interesting experience. And I'm, you know, Black Sight came out in the US earlier this year, mm-hmm. you know, and it got picked up by Epic Pictures. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Like Epic which Pictures. Which is great. Yeah. Cool, man. And yeah, cool. yeah, it's on the Dread label. So, you know, those guys are awesome. Like, I've been reading Dread Central for like 15 years. So it's like, 
Okay, great. Yeah, you know. so a, a black site, so people... Do, well, I've, I've dropped the trailer. Yeah. An elite military unit encounters a supernatural entity known as the Elder Gods that forces them into battle against an army from another world. I'm Professor August Kellerman, Chief Research Officer for Artemis. Do not make eye contact directly with an Elder. To the untrained mind, the effects can be irreversible. They caught him, you know. Erebus. The one that killed your parents. So where are we going? Somewhere sunny, maybe? You Elder Gods all talk a big game. Yet here you are, hiding on our planet, living inside human hosts. Attention all officers, we have a situation in the blue zone. Give me Erebus and we'll go. You see a bad guy, Sam, got it? Are you joking? Next time. We'll see about that. So, I mean, that was, the, tra- that, that was the trailer. And I, how- I love the trailer voice you did there. Thank you. I could go further. <laughs> An elite military unit encounter. You know what I mean? I could have. No, no, you sold it well, I mate. did it well right, on the first right, one. Just right balance, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I've done this a few times. So, uh, it is out there and people can see it now. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's out in the US. It comes out officially in the UK on the 2nd of September, I believe is the date. On what kind of platform? It'll, it'll be, you know, your normal HMV shelves, Sky Store, cool all, as that, fuck, all that stuff. Though, right? Man, so. How nice is that going to feel? Yeah, it? yeah, it's it's really cool, man. And it's a film that's intentionally a bit left field. It, it's it's very sort of commercial, but at mm-hmm. the same time, it's can we take two genres that have no right ever mixing with each other? Like, can you take essentially an action comedy and meld it with a Lovecraftian horror? And everyone was like, do not do that. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely, don't even <laughs> attempt it. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to so try Because it. of that, I'm going to do it now. Yeah, yeah. and... and, and it, by in by doing that, I instinctively knew immediately why this is going to be so polarizing because yeah. action comedy fans are going to be like, "Why is all this Lovecraft stuff?" Yeah, here? what's this in the middle of and it? Lovecraft I don't want to see fans it. Are be like, why are they making <laughs> jokes? But there's going to be a big mix of the who like both genres who yeah. go, "Yeah, do you know what? It fits into my wheelhouse." Yeah, I, do you know what? I'm very proud of it, and um, right. you know, I got a lot of freedom on that film. You know, I sit here saying, "Well, let any any." positives or or you know negatives about the film that people feel like i fully take responsibility for and like i own them yeah because it was really you know that was really my project to, to do as i pleased with and uh how, how did that come about then why was it your project to that you could do what you want with how did you raise the money you had no one saying it has to yeah so the, the investor alvin adams the exec producer he um he always wanted to get into films always fascinated by it right you know you know me and him knew each other and he was following what I was doing career-wise and was just like look i'll I'll give you 150 grand. 
Wow. Which is, you know, in film terms, not a lot of money, but it's like, you know, it's just like, I'll give you 150 grand to do what you want with it. And you um, were like, well, in that case, I'll go back to my roots and make something. I basically, really want. yeah. So it was like, okay, almost reversing all the big budgety stuff we'd done with Redwood. And, but you know, taking on board the stuff you'd learnt from the big budget yeah, stuff and absolutely. done it in a cleverer Trying to way. find out, could you mould these two together? And I mean, it, you know, and it was the first film where I really kind of went back to all that stuff I taught myself. I mean, there's, there's 166 VFX shots in um, wow. Blacksite, and I did 166. 65 of them <laughs> which so, bastard did the other one <laughs> <laughs> how dare he or yeah, she yeah I know but it was just what, it was just some, there was some compositing I couldn't oh, quite get done <laughs> that's amazing though, that you did all that and it does look cool as hell the VFX are amazing so the fact that you yeah. taught yourself to do that and it's, yeah it's, it's a great really moment cool. to sit in the cinema and then people you know people go oh it looked cool or the effects are cool I'm like yeah, yeah I did those I did all know? of it so yeah, that was kind of a cool thing to do. But I'm very, I'm very proud of Black Sight, and I think you know it's one of these movies. I, I, I feel, you know, it, even if my career keeps going the way it goes, you know, I'll be like sixty, and like I can see someone knocking the door and being like, "We're going to remake Black Sight. Here's your big yeah, check." Exactly. Because you know? I think it's it's one of these movies where, although the reaction's polarizing now, I, I you know, I, I, I feel like okay, but I made something that I think people will revisit there. Yeah, know? which is nice. Or you'll have someone knocking on your door and saying, that film inspired me to be a filmmaker and they're the next J.J. Abrams I, I, or whatever. Hopefully, you, know? I mean, you never know. I think that's why you do it at the end of the day. Yeah, it, it really you know? is. It really is. I mean, I never trust filmmakers that say... <laughs> oh, I thought I, you were going to stop that. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't trust filmmakers. You know, when you talk to them and they say, oh yeah, I, make, I only make films for me. I'm like, mate, what are you lying for? Yeah, exactly. You we, make films we're because, filmmakers. Yeah, you yeah. make it so that an audience watches of course it. Like, it that's, is. So yeah, that's my, my big takeaway from this podcast is don't trust filmmakers that say they only do it for themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's a lie. Or if you are one of those people who say it, stop, <laughs> stop saying, saying it. it. And certainly not to other filmmakers. Yeah, it's not we, working. It's, we know. <laughs> um, you had Jessica Jane Stafford in that, Angela Dixon, yeah. Toby Osmond, Henry Duthwaite, uh, Sophie Del Pizzo, and uh, yeah. Samantha Schnitzler, who I've worked with recently as well. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, cracking up-and-coming, brilliant indie film cast as well, you know? Yeah, they're really just a solid group of people that were like, hey... Yes, I'll give up three weeks of my life for, mm-hmm. you know, medium pay medium at best. Pay and and, we'll, work and in they a bar. came to this um, <laughs> nuclear base in Kidderminster. We found this place called Drake Low Tunnels in Kidderminster. Yeah. Um, which Curfew just shot in there as well, the, uh, yeah, the Sky yeah. One show. Mm-hmm. They came in after us. And uh, these tunnels are like underneath the town. No one knows they're there. There's like three and a half mile network of them. And it's a constant six degrees Celsius in there. So, oh, wow. It's freezing okay. Yeah. And that's damp that's and miserable. Cool. Yes. You know, and so people basically put themselves through three weeks of misery for me, but we all had fun and it all came it, out, you know, it came out really well. What do you think actors look for? in a director what do they want from a director such as yourself why do they come on board I know you worked with a lot of those people before but yeah no I think it, I think honestly it comes down to what the actor is trying to achieve with a career because some actors will just work with anyone because they just they're after they're not really in it for longevity they're in it for an ego scratch right now and there's a lot of mm. filmmakers like that too you know and mm. I'm guilty of that in areas like jumping on Redwood so quick and stuff sure you know? but uh, no one would blame you for that we forgive right. you for that of course yeah, I think, it's, but it's about admi- admitting well okay that's the thing I did wrong and mm-hmm. can, I can adjust that now and I think sure. for the actors that are serious and if you are an actor and you're trying to you know okay this is what I want to do with my life like I feel like the the best approach especially when you know, trying to decide who you're going to work with is mm-hmm. like, like do your research, find directors that you're like, I like their work. I yeah. feel I would sit well with that person's tone, you know, and 
try to be selective about the directors you work with. And, and same with, you know, directors. It's like I've worked with actors who, you know, wouldn't work with again, no names. Sure. But, you know, the, a lot of the people I pick because I think you're somebody that I believe has the same sort of fire as me, you know, mm. like you're, you're in it for the long haul, you know, when stuff is, when stuff is, uh, you know, really tough on set and yeah, which it can be, you, 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 yeah, you'll be there for me and I'll be there for you. And I, I feel like you have to have this sort of relationship with the people you work with where you're like, look, if you don't let me down, I won't let you down, mm. you know? And I think that's, it has to be a handoff. Like actors need to find directors who aren't going to let them down. Yes. You don't want to be an actor and go to set and put everything you've got into something. And then when the actual product comes out, it's visionless and messy. Totally. Oh, and it's the same, right same as a yeah, director. Yeah. You want, you want actors that you, you know can help you get that vision finished. And yeah. so I think it's, it's, it's a definite partnership and it's about picking people that you trust and, you know, and it's funny because now I've started working with bigger name actors where you, mm. get, you get less of a say on, you know, the casting really comes down from upon high. It does, you yeah. They they sort of say, oh, you can't have this, but we need to have someone in that bracket. Yeah, and, but that's when selling kicks back in. Cool, and you're yeah. like, right, you sell them into being on board with you. you yes. Know? And you make them passionate and excited yeah. in a way that they perhaps haven't been for 20 years. Yeah, you're you know? right. But so. what I really like what you said there is is actors who come to you having already worked, uh, watched your stuff. Because... I think that's vital. So many actors don't. They turn up to auditions and they're like, hey, yeah, okay, I've read a bit of your script and it's cool and I like my character, but, you know, who are you? Imagine if they'd watched your film and said, you know, I really like what you did there. I really like how with this character. and Or even just sent you an email saying, I've watched your films. I love them. I think we could work together. If there's ever a chance to audition me, please do. You're going to take that seriously and you're going to you put their name down in a little list, which I do, and go... I will bring them in. I, I, I have the exact same list there set up, man. Like uh-huh. if, some, if I think somebody's got a little bit of fire in them, they go yeah. on the list. And, and those people who send those emails have fire in them because they've yeah. thought about it. I think this is it though, but isn't that kind of indicative of this industry across all the, not just actors, but yeah. directors, writers, editors. Like there's, there's two camps of people, right? There's the, there's the ones who are like, they, they feel just because they want it, that the universe will eventually deliver it mm-hmm. to them because They've asked the universe for it and it's got it eventually. Absolutely. And then there's the other kind. It's like <laughs> who sort of manifest the world they want to live in. Like I'm, I'm going to force this into existence, yeah. if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And those are the people that I try and work with. Because absolutely. I think, well, you're on the same wavelength absolutely. as me. Absolutely. You know? And it's proof that you've done that. It's... And these people that sit around and it's like, well, you know, I mean, I've had actors who aren't that. Well, they aren't big at all. And, you know, you go, oh, okay, I'm interested in working with you. Could you, you know, we've got a thing coming up. I'd love to see a self-tape. And they're like, I'm not self-taping. And you're like, well, then I'm not casting you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Just, as harsh as that, that is. But know? it's true because we need to see if they can work in this particular role and with you. And But that tells you everything you need to know right off the bat. It's yeah. like, I know this. There has never been a film on... In the history of cinema, in my opinion, that was easy to make. Sure. Like, I don't believe it. Like, if you can find me that movie, I will fuck it. I will give you my shoes now, walk home barefoot. I know. Those those films don't exist. Well, apparently, just just to throw a curveball in. um, I'm going to have to give you my shoes. Yeah, (laughs) because they're quite nice. Is Olivia (laughs) Olivia Wilde on Booksmart. Now, I'm sure she had problems. Yeah. But the way she sold it and done very well with it is that she said it was the best shoot. Everything went well. There wasn't a problem. But we maybe that's for PR. Yeah, I mean, look, we've, I've, I've, there's definitely moves like, like, like for me, Stairs is a movie I'd say, you know yeah. what, man, that everything went well. Yeah, your fourth everything movie. Went, yeah, everything yeah. went to plan. 
It's but still it's hard. Still really, it's still really hard. fucking hard. Your just, brain was full of stuff. Just because every day is going on track. It's it's going on track mm. because you're working hard to make it go on track. Yes, right? like, exactly. So to, Putting out fires before they become fires. Exactly. So Stairs is your your fourth film that you made in five years. And tell us a little bit about it because so I know it's not out yet. No, Stairs is going to premiere this summer uh, in London. So we, you're, you're not allowed to say where. Can't it's a say where. I think I know where. <laughs> can't say. But um, announcement soon, right? Yes, announcement soon, but it's yeah. um, uh, it's a film I'm really proud of. I mean, it's it's. I think growing as a filmmaker, you know, those first three movies of mine, they, they're sort of heavily influenced by other filmmakers. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's you know it's fairly evident when you're watching them. It's like you know where I take my influences from. But Stairs feels like the first movie I made where I just binned all of that and I, I sort of said, well, "What does a Tom Payton film feel like?" Had your own voice, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I feel that way, and it's very stylized. I mean. You know, we intentionally use this RGB palette where everything is like, like heavy blue, heavy green, heavy red. Yeah. You know, and, um, uh, for a lot of people, those, the first 10 minutes of this movie will feel like a tough watch because what's going on on screen is kind of tough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bit horrible to sit through, but it's also got this like Mad Max Fury Road style blue day for night conversion in on it intentionally ah. um, where we went out of our way to create this sort of hyper stylistic comic book feel uh you know and um all the visual effects are comped on so you know it's got this sort of blue and orange where like explosions are going off and wow how was that easier to do in the incredibly the <laughs> difficult to do so but yet you hard. chose to do it i love yeah, it yeah, yeah it was like what's the hardest possible version of this <laughs> what's the hardest do? movie i could make i know well i mean that because basically how you shoot that stuff is normally i think day for night looks like dog shit like it, yeah it, i'm never like, a fan of it yeah it's, no no like i've never looked at day for night before. Gone, oh that looks great so being the sadist that I am, it was like, can I do day for night, right? <laughs> can I make a whole challenge yourself? Yeah. And it was like, okay, well, how would we, if we were going to make day for night look like this is intentional, this mm-hmm. is, you know, we've, we, instead of trying to, instead of trying to make it look like legit nighttime, instead we're going, well, this is, it's heavily stylized on purpose, yeah. you know, and, uh, and we're trying to create this unique aesthetic that potentially you don't see often. So the film has got its own voice. Yes. And, you know, one of the ways you do that is traditionally when you shoot day for night, what they'll do is they'll stop the camera down so that the image is darker off the bat and then they can, they can grade into this blue. Sure. What we did was we shot the whole, every outdoor shot was shot two stops overexposed. So, I mean, literally, wow. it's okay. every, you're in broad daylight and everything is two stops overexposed. Right. And... That's terrifying it's when you're terrifying. on set. Terrifying, of course you're it like, is. You're looking at the monitor. Yeah, like, this is ah, fucking ah, awful. The right? actors, don't, actors don't come and look at this. Yeah, don't, please don't please look at this. this. And there's and there's no like temporary look you can put on the monitor to to, to know you're doing it no. right. Yeah, sure. Like, and by doing that, what it let us do was, you know, we were able to then pull the image back down, um, like by darkening it up. But you you keep all the details. You lose none of the details, and it lets you have this sort of really crisp image. And then we we go in and we replace all the skies and we kind of give it this over the top crisp comic book look, you know, that you only achieve after you've, finished and also it's a it's a big visual effects film as well so there's like missiles flying over and planes and mm-hmm. you know huge explosions going off in the backgrounds and tons of gunfire and and again you know where we'd normally you know like on g-lock the one we just finished we opted to shoot blanks because obviously they look great on camera yeah. here you actually can't do that because everything's going blue and then you're compositing those orange fires back on top so, so i just have to be going yeah, with so the hands exactly Every, everything is down to you timing. selling it and wow and it was um 
like an incredibly difficult challenge. But... Yeah, and again, you, you work with similar actors, you know, you work Samantha again, Toby Osmond again, yeah, yeah. you know, all these wonderful people. Shane Ward jumps in there, it's first time working with him, right? On yeah, a, he came, on he came like, straight out of Coronation Street. Amazing, and, uh, yeah. He's honestly, I, I, I mean this, I'm not just saying it, I think Shane will end up being like a big British export. I think he'll end Seriously? up in that sort of... Yeah, the guy is phenomenal. Like, and you know, and there's a stigma of like, okay, well, isn't he the guy that won the X Factor? I'm yeah. like, yeah, but this guy yeah. can fucking act. Man. Jennifer Hudson nearly won her one. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, well, okay. No, no, Shane, Shane. I mean, he already has the clout and the, and the public awareness around him. But more than that, he's a phenomenally talented actor. That's so great to hear. I'm excited for people to see what he's done here. Yeah, and he's just, again, he's you know, he's got that same passion and fire that i was talking about earlier mm. you know he he wants to deliver the maximum he can and, and and so i think me and him made quite a good team there yeah no absolutely it sounds that way do you produce everything yourself as well yeah i produced the first four movies and you know i'm not technically a producer on g-lock but I, I yeah was. same <laughs> yeah, as me yeah, on the day yeah was. you always do loads yeah. of stuff <laughs> do you have another producer on set with you so me and george my dop were always uh, co-producers together and then alexa joined as a producer around black site and alexa war alexa yeah. war she yeah. also produced i love my mom and yeah and super talented super hard working yeah. you know and and incredibly good with the numbers so i was going to say what makes a good producer because that's why i was asking because obviously when you're directing it's very hard to produce and think about where food's coming from and where we're going to get yeah, from yeah. this location to that location so what in your eyes makes a good producer for you as a director I think it's somebody who, you know, that again, it's, it's the same for any job role, really. They're on board with what you're trying to achieve. You know, they're, they're, they're in it because they believe that this is worth their time. You know, like the, tr- the truth about filmmaking, it, why do any of us do this? Like, honestly, well, <laughs> what, I mean, you speak to any director, like to be a good director, you, you know, you have to, you, you'll have a bit of brains about you. Let's be honest. Right. Which means you could probably have gone and done any other job. Like, sure. Why the, bloody hell did you pick this it's this carnage way, no money it's yeah, not it's stable <laughs> yeah. you, you, you have to eschew the normal lifestyle you, that you sell all the time you constantly no have to tell your parents it'll be alright <laughs> you know like why are you picking this yeah, for and, yeah. and, and the truth is is because like, well, I think we're all in it to, to leave legacy behind you know it's like when, when a normal person dies you know all they leave behind is that house they brought or that car they owned which gets taken back or, and then somebody mm. knocks your house down and puts a block of flats on it but when you make films for a living, yeah. you know, uh, in any involvement from, you know, the runner all the way up to the director, you're, you're, you're never, you never die, right? Like that's yeah. enshrined forever. And like, that's what you're really looking for in a producer is somebody that's in it for that reason too. They're, they're, they get why you're doing this and they get that it, as hard as it will be and as many creative disagreements as you might have or as tough or as tight as the budget might get, that this is about leaving something behind that's worth worth having your name on it you know i love it i love that and i think that is you've hit the nail on the head i think that's true that's one of the reasons why i wanted to make the food for thought documentary is to have a voice and to try and make a difference in how we eat and how we live and i was like well why not i'm a filmmaker and why not go make something that you believe in and passionate about so well, yeah but that's why I think, not i think human beings are where we are because of storytelling yes yeah. yeah, like that's the difference between like why did Homo sapiens make it and the and the other apes didn't? Because yeah, yeah. we got really good at making up stories. Of course we did. Yeah, you know, and I think it's you know what we do as as a job right now. It's you know it's not. It, I'm not going to. I'm not sitting here and hero in filmmakers. You know, mm-hmm. but we but we are we are here to do is to 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 
put a you know a sort of a, a time coded stamp on a period of history and say that's what everybody was thinking round about then. So that two hundred years later, some historian can look into that. Yeah, you know, and that's really what we're here to do. We're we're record keepers. Nice. You know, and it's and it's and, you know you've got to you've got to work with people that agree with what you're trying to pull off here. Mm-hmm. And if they're if they're there, if anybody on your set is there. Because it's just a job. Mm-hmm. Get rid of that person, man. hundred percent. Yeah, don't be here. Yeah, yeah. Which is sometimes tough in the studio system because, yeah. like, I say sometimes uh, crews are forced upon you because they're part of the system, and they might not want to be there that day. Yeah, but then that's where you team. go into the selling mode again. Of course, you it is. You bring them on. Find side. out because yes. once, they, once upon a time they did it because they had the fire. So and why can not you give make it back? them? Can you get it back? That's the question. Absolutely. You're so right. Absolutely. And you go around. You put your arm around them metaphorically or whatever, and yeah. you say, "Listen, here's what I want," and get passionate with me. And yeah, if they do, great. Yeah. Um, and if not, if not, job well, center. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then your fifth film in five yeah. years is G Lock, um, which stars Stephen Moyer. Uh, you have Casper Van Dien, who I love, um, Toby Osmond again, Shane Ward again, and Emily Haig, who is in the dare, um, yeah. as well. So it's really cool. And again, I, I saw Emily on Monday and we were talking. I said I was coming on this. She was telling me what a good time she had on the dare. Brilliant. So there you go. Yeah, world, yeah. Right? yeah, she's fantastic in it as well. Um, yeah, so look, G Lock is bigger budget, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's Big my name biggest budget. It? Yeah, we've gone, it's a space film, so you can't, you just can't do that. <laughs> well, you've got to shoot in space for one, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> pain in the ass, honestly. <laughs> just, just try, trying to have a drink in space. It's like, no, um, we, yeah, it's a, it's a much, much bigger budget affair than I've ever done before. How did it come about? How did you manage to get the bigger budget? I started to get, obviously, a lot of, a lot of traction and, uh, you know, I think people started to realize, okay, this, this guy I think, is I think, I think what I've inadvertently done, I think when I first started my career, I was always like, Oh, I made this first film and, you know, I didn't do a Gareth Edwards. I didn't get Godzilla off straight away and all we this want, stuff. Did you know what? That's interesting. A lot of people do think that. And, yeah. and I've known people have come on the podcast and people I've spoken to since have always said, if your first film isn't a hit, you know, it's tough for you. If it isn't massive, you go, no, no most true, people's man. films aren't, yeah. first films aren't. Well, that's what I've realised. I think with me, I've, I've, I've created so much momentum in a short space of time that yeah. a lot of the industry now just thinks, Oh, well, this little bastard's going to do it anyway. We better just <laughs> yeah. give him some money. Yeah, like, we thought without me. I better, yeah. I better say, Why not I, jump on his bandwagon? I think you know that's what I mean? sort of what's happened. So I started to get this like influx of offers. Do this, do that. Lots of companies that I really like respect and, and right. I love their work. And they're actually returning your calls now. <laughs> yeah, we're calling me, which calling was you. like, hello, this yeah, is interesting. Yeah, yeah hello, Butlins. Um, you know, but it was like, okay, but we're finding the right, like, okay, this is going to be my first big budget movie, you know, and I got offered a couple. And I felt like, hmm, I was in a sort of a danger zone career-wise where it would be, okay, if I took this budget and it didn't go right, yeah. every from that point forward, I would be known as that guy that's amazing with small budgets, but you can't be trusted with a big one. Yes. So yeah, I, yeah. I started Important. to like, okay, so, you know, it's very hard when you get that first offer and someone's like, hey, I'll give you three million quid, that you're like, you <laughs> and then you have to stop yourself and think about, mm-hmm. is that right for you? And um you know, and so I, I, I just sort of played the field and then, uh, yeah, the guys at Goldfinch came at me and yeah. uh, they were like, we want to do this big budget film with you. Uh, you know, we've got this, you know, uh, studio that's perfect for this, for this, the space film that you want to do. Great. And, um, you know, and it came, that really got, came, got born out of going, okay, well, you know, you, they're not the only option on the table, but they're the right one for me. You know, mm. they, they felt like the right partner. And in terms of giving me the creative freedom so that I knew I could make a film that wasn't going to tank my career because it didn't live up to, you know, like if you're going to take three million quid from someone, 
and you've been you've got a reputation as taking 200 grand and making it look like a million yeah like uh, my job in this film was to take 3 million and make it look like 15 million yeah and to do that i needed to know i had the partners behind me to make that happen and, and that, that is exactly what what did happen so you know i feel like i chose right there amazing uh, and did, and you wrote it as well let's talk about your writing because you've written everything yeah yeah made. i've written all five of them so far so how do you go about it what's your process do you stick notes upon the wall do you yeah, just stick all, it to see what all sticks? that cliche shit yeah do it so, all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. my writing process is like uh, there's lots of different ways you can approach putting something together but for me the the, the types of stories that i'm attracted to yeah. the types of films that i you know love as, as a filmmaker they're always about a singular theme they're the exploration of one theme and I feel a lot of the movies where I, I kind of get frustrated or annoyed by, you know, they, it's where they they establish a theme and then another one and then another one and then they start, you know, exploring them all and they don't really pay any of them off. And so I make everything about my filmmaking purely down to what is the theme of this movie. Yeah. So, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, something like G-Lock, I suppose, you know, like the, the theme of that movie is, is really how would you like it? Because the film's got this sort of kind of very balanced argument about immigration. It's not a left-wing film. It's not a right-wing film. It's not a center film. It's an all-of-them film. Okay. And it's basically saying, you've all got a point. Everybody shut up and get along, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, and so it was like very important to me that I've stayed on point thematically. And so what I do, my process is, I decide what that theme is and I write it on a big piece of white masking tape and I stick it on my, my... iMac Pro and it's there for the duration of the writing process nice and I, I leave it there till I finish editing I only took the G-Lock one down last week because fin- I finished my work on that's it that's a great idea because then constantly that's your mantra that's the theme I want to tell and I've sort of got my plot and okay now to, to make that theme work within this plot it's really going to be about the characters and so what I'll do is you know, I'll really deep dive into that thematically. So I'll watch a lot of videos about the philosophy behind certain themes and mm-hmm. I'll basically look at every argument for that theme, you know, like every, if, if there was a, a round table of 20 people and I put that theme in the middle and I said, right, fight about that for an hour. What are all the different opinions that would emerge around that table? And then I try and give every character one of those arguments. So that your characters are all basically, they all represent that theme, but none of them are on the same page as each other at the beginning. Yes. And so the film becomes this conflict of whittling it down to, getting to the point of of the movie which is in my opinion the point of storytelling from an author's perspective is to say okay here's what i'm talking about thematically here's all the arguments for that theme argued you know in writ in front of you by the characters Mm -hmm. and the point of the story is to get to the end of the film and say here is my opinion on the theme but there's enough arguments in there that you can make your own mind up. Which one did you agree with? But I'm very clearly stating this is what I think. Yeah. You know, and you can't be too... If if you... One of the mistakes I made early on in my writing was to be like, all the other ideas are wrong and the only one that counts is mine. And I think as I've matured as a writer, now I'm like, everyone's got a point. I just happen to think this. And so everything about the the story becomes thematically guided. And then when I'm writing, I then sort of go, okay, well, these are the arguments about the theme I wanted to look at. And Mm -hmm. then these are the characters and where they come from, from that argument's perspective. What situations can I get them in to make them argue about the theme? And Mm -hmm. so 
every single scene and every single line of dialogue in my script is only about the theme. And if I write anything that I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel like, that feels like plot instead of theme, I delete it or find a new way to put it, you know, to get rid of it or to get it across so that, because I don't want anything in there that's not about thema- the thematic drive, you know? Yes. So that's kind of, you know, and I know that doesn't appeal to a lot of film. You know, somebody like Terence Malick, it's like, oh, just, I want to feel you know, the, whatever, you know, the, the visual stuff is saying. And I respect that. But my process is to be, is to overtly argue about theme and try mm. to come up with a, you know, an opinion on it. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of my process really. And it, and it applies all the way through my directing on set. You know, I'm, I don't do storyboards and I don't do okay. um, shot lists, mm. but I do, I do he- heavy thematic diagrams for the scene. Like, this scene's arguing about this part of the theme here. So what's the best way to put the camera to argue the theme? And, you know, when you're on set, you know, I try to let like spontaneity help, you know, guide me into, into creating something that is still arguing about the theme. Yeah. Basically I argue, I'm arguing with myself all day long, left, right and center. That's what, I, that's what I try and do. Your first AD must be going mental. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm very good at that myself. So I, I'm very you, good at yeah. keeping that stuff on track. Well, that's track. the thing. You keep everything in your head. It's, it's therefore, you know, well, no, when I say I don't put like storyboards and, and, and shot lists, you know, it's still very detailed what we're doing today. I imagine. But yeah. I don't, but it's, you know, I have a rhythm to directing on set where, you know, everybody knows, we're doing the wide first, then the mids, then the close-ups, then the planned grip shots. But, you know, in amongst all of... So that, you know, there's a very s- specific way mm. of doing it. You know, and I also make my actors run the whole scene top to bottom. I don't do, I don't do sections and block stuff out. Great, like a theatre piece at first. Yeah, yeah. essentially. So get I block, it in their mind. Yeah. I get in with the actors on set. I block the whole scene. Mm-hmm. You know, we really dive into it thematically, you know, and I try to make everything work, all the moving pieces, the crew come and watch. And then they know, everybody knows... Wide mids, close-ups, grip, you know, and, and in amongst all of that, we've found this coverage and the blocking has found the thematic argument. Yeah, so absolutely. That's kind of my process. It's a great process. It's hard to, to plan too much of your shots before because sometimes you get there and you go, well, this doesn't work now. The light's different. The actors doesn't want to sit there. You, yeah. It feels wrong. You sit there and rehearse it with the actors and suddenly it moves and the guy, we're setting the camera up over there. You go, ah, I'm changing that now. Yeah. Whereas if you go, look, just let me rehearse this. Give me a moment, then come and have a look at it, and I'll tell you where the camera's going to go. It's sometimes well, yeah, it's, it's, it works it's, as well. The day, you got to be pragmatic because again, filmmaking is just bloody hard, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's, it's a problem solving job. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. you, you wake up in the morning, there's like fifty problems straight away, and you, you've got to fix them all because it's your own fucking fault. Because you said you want to make a film, so it. you know there's no point in like <laughs> no point in throwing your so toys true. out. You pram. fucking wrote it. Yeah, it's your it's own like, fucking fault. We're only here dealing with this problem because of you. you said you wanted to make a film. You mate, could so. still be an iron mate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know you got you've got to be you've got to be pragmatic and you've got to. Accept that that you've 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 signed up yeah. to to solve problems, not you know throw tantrums about problems. And I so, think so the true. reason I steer clear of storyboarding too much is because like I I I think that you can almost inadvertently create problems with them, or I find at least where you know you really sell people on the vision of the storyboard, only mm-hmm. to find out you cannot do that on set. Yeah, uh, but then the crew don't want to do. They have. I was like, well, that was my day planned out, and you've changed it now, mm-hmm. mate. You know, so. Try to be a little bit more pragmatic than, than that. But, um, there's structure to what I do for sure. It's just, it's all based around, you know, thematic drive as opposed to visual drive, you know? 
Amazing, amazing. Okay, and finally, before you leave us and you've given us so much knowledge, it's been great. Uh, some advice for someone now who's listening to this to go, cool, I want to make my film now. How do I start? How do I, anything that springs to mind, what they should do to move forward, to take a step? Yeah, I think if, you, if you've got something, if you've got a story that you absolutely need, you know, need to tell, yeah. I think you have to ask yourself first and foremost, why? Like, not like, why are you telling the story? And like, that comes down to theme. It has to be, like, if, if when somebody says to you, what's your film about? If you say, oh, it's about a man and a dog and they go here. It's like, that's not what it's about. Yeah. Like, decide yeah. what your thing is about and if it's worth telling. And if it's worth telling and, you know, you can find a way to, to pare that down, there's nothing stopping you in this day and age going out and shooting. If you can afford 300 quid for an Osmo Mobile and you've got an iPhone 8, you are... Good to go. Yep, right? totally agree. And the, the key is for you to problem solve that that theme into something shootable, mm-hmm. not say, oh, I can't do it because I, I needed a dinosaur. Did you need the dinosaur, yeah. though? You know, because it, it, once you associate what your theme is, mm-hmm. plot almost becomes the thing that you back the theme up with, and you can you can create something around that theme that's, that, that is doable, 100%. You know, even if you set something in a car in the middle of a road, you can... Mate, Tom Hardy made a film interesting for 90 minutes, driving concrete down the M1. You know, you can do it. Yeah, you really so can. So you just have to figure out the why you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And if you can figure out why you want to do it, then there shouldn't be any reason why you can't. Brilliant. That's so good. I love the theme thing. Do you, and that's really interesting when you're pitching your ideas to someone, investor or to actors or to crew, is don't talk about Joe goes into a building and it gets blown up. Talk about the theme because people get moved by feeling and experience much more than you know, uh, point A to B to C, they go, well, actually it's about bullying and redemption because what, you know, you go that suddenly you go, Oh, okay. I'm interested now. Yeah. But I mean, this is it. It's like, how you sell it. Yeah. You Selling. Just get really, get really like down to the point. This is it. But isn't that what a film is? Think about yeah. what, a, think about what a sales pitch is and then think about what a film is. Like if I'm selling something to someone, it's a strong opening, mm-hmm. uh, a middle section, which, describes to you why you should be invested and then a close that makes you hand over your money mm-hmm. and all a film is is a, a really strong opening that says why you should listen a middle section which keeps you invested and then a close that makes you go that was worth my time and that's that's it that's the key to filmmaking it's so selling. <laughs> tom this has been amazing thank you so much i am going to go get myself a job as a club rep <laughs> i really appreciate it man Pleasure. Thanks for where me can on. people follow you on the socials uh it's at Tom Payton Film everywhere, basically. That's yeah. P-A-T-O-N, uh, which is not Patton, just so everybody knows. Yeah. Tom Payton Film. and uh, yeah. Someone else patented that. Yeah, yeah, yeah everywhere. Yeah. But Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that jazz. So Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. Honestly, this has been amazing. Uh, this has been the Filmmakers Podcast. I'm Giles Alderson. You can follow me at Giles Alderson on Twitter. Follow the podcast at Filmmakers Pod. And give us some love if you like this episode. Why not? Share it. Tell your friends. Tom has given you so much knowledge, so why wouldn't you do that? Uh, We are back next Tuesday, as always, so we will see you then. Until then, make your film happen and keep doing it. And I'll see you at the Make Your Film event on the 9th of July. Until then, cheers, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Cheers, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.